Welcome to the first episode of VSTML 2010 Recaps from Reality TV Warriors. My name is Michael Harmstone, and joining me as always is a Canadian who loves the opportunity to stimulate new people, Logan Saunders. Good evening. Good evening. It's the start of a new era, and one when we're going very far back in time for Vidim. Twelve years, in fact. Twelve years indeed. I think there's only one season you've seen that's earlier than this one now, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, you mean like the first episode of Mexico? I thought you'd seen all of Mexico now. No, I haven't. So yeah, this is the earliest season then that you've seen. Yep. In that case. <laughs> I have nothing else to add. That is correct, Michael. <laughs> that is an actual fact. <laughs> and this is a season that we have talked about so much in all of the other podcasts and then never actually got the opportunity to do it as a historian until now. So we've done 2010 and from 2016 to the present? This is 2010, obviously, and then we did 2016 for Belgium, 2017 for Belgium and the Netherlands, and then 2018 for both, and then so on. Okay, so Oregon was 2017? Yeah. And then the old dreaded Dominican Republic season that you and Bindle say was 2016? Yeah, I don't hate it. I just think that it's, if we ever did cover it, it would be one episode and that would be the second one. And that's because of how dreadful that clue is that ruins the rest of the season. The actual season and cast is is decent. You get Ellie, you get another icon called Cecile. It's just the whole clue that Ephraim picked up on and ruins who the mole is after two episodes. And then the earliest one that's available online is 2009? Uh, Mexico is 2008. That's fully available, I think. Yeah, it's the earliest one. Okay. But yeah... Japan was my first ever Vidim season, which is sort of why I suggested that we do it. It was my first ever Vidim season. It's the first mole season that I'd seen since um, since the US reboot the second time. Yeah, that was 2007, I think, when they did this, the reboot. 2008, I think. But yeah, somewhere around yeah. there. <laughs> within, within a year of that. It's been a long time. Plus or minus a year. I think it was 2008 that... Uh, that was the fifth season of the US. And I have to say, I fell in love with this season. I fell in love with this cast because Japan is such a wonderful place for them to set a mole season. I don't know if you remember this, Michael, but the first time I watched an episode of this season was actually uh, at your house. Uh, over the Christmas of 2016, we watched the first episode. I do not remember watching that episode with you. Yeah. Yeah, that's the first episode of Vidim I ever saw was when you put that episode on uh, uh, Vidim Japan. It would have been like three days before Christmas, I think. <laughs> I think it was right before we went to Amsterdam. And then you ended up visiting some of the locations from this season. Yeah, which is kind of fun. That uh, I think I saw... I can't remember today. I don't think I watched the full season for a couple of years. Or maybe I watched it all before I went there. I think you did watch it all before you went there, because I remember you saying, oh, I might go to Little Holland Village for uh, for New Year. And then uh, then you obviously did. That's next episode. We will obviously talk a lot more about that next episode, I suspect. Yeah. There's a lot of Dutch-themed things around Nagasaki and and just that, that part of the country overall, which is quite fascinating. Yeah, I went to a Dutch-themed park for New Year's Eve in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> And obviously, given that we've both seen the season, it is well worth pointing out that as with our Georgia recaps, 
this is one we've both seen, so there will be a section on what the mole did at the end of the episode, after we've said our goodbyes, and there will be no speculation on who the mole could be, because we both know who it is. Philippe. Yeah, it is Philippe. <laughs> Not this season. Wrong season, Thomas. So, a couple things at the start to point out. We've got Peter Yan. This was his final season as the host? Uh, one more after this. One more after, okay. And I'll say this now, if we do ever get to doing the next season, he is peak bastard Peter Yan mode in that season, and it's delightful. Until Gilles de Costa came along, Peter Yan was, I think, probably my favourite mole host, because he is, he's a complete arsehole to these people a lot of the time. Especially this episode. This episode was vicious. At the Leading up to the first execution, he said, it took you two days to get to Japan, you got to mull around for one day, and now you're being executed first thing in the morning on the second day, and it's going to take you two days to get back to Holland. Yeah, we talk a lot about the different sort of, not archetypes, but the different sorts of mole hosts that you get. And Peter Yan is the archetype of like a spy chief, complete prick, obviously been at the job for 30 years and just waiting for retirement. He gives zero shits to these people a lot of the time, and it's wonderful. It reminds you of what Pierce Brosnan would be as James Bond if it went on for a few films too many. Yeah, there's a point in the 2011 season, El Salvador, Nicaragua, where he rolls his eyes at, at someone and you, you visibly see it on the screen. And it's one of Friend of the Podcast Bindle's favourite screen caps ever, because he just rolls his eyes when they do something stupid. And he also has that... He has a bit of overlap in personality with Grant Bowler, I found, too. Yeah, there, there is a lot of Grant Bowler in there. And we've made no secret of the fact we love Grant Bowler on this podcast. Yeah, because Peter Yan is a more or less no-nonsense type of guy. He's yeah. not going to be silly for the camera or joke around that much, unless it's at your expense. <laughs> no, he's very much not the sort of mole host who would eat with the contestants, for example. There's that professional distance that Anderson Cooper talked about when he was interviewed about US Mole. He tried to keep a little bit of a distance, I think. You don't really see him interacting with the contestants as much as you would an art or a Gilles de Costa, for example. Well, Peter Yan, he was never a past contestant, right? No. Art is the first person to be a contestant and then become host of the Mole. Yeah, so that's a big contrast from what we've seen for pretty much the past 10 years with Art and Rick. Yeah, Art started the archetype of previous contestant or mole returning to become the host. Or the archetype. But yeah, I make no secret of the fact that Peter Yan is a delightful host, and I think he would be a really nice guy to actually talk to. I just think that there is the obvious professional distance there in, in the seasons that he hosts, which definitely comes across in this episode. And... Uh... One huge difference to note about this season is we get everyone's bio very quickly at the start before anything else is shown in the episode. Which I really like because it actually helps us know who the hell these people are when they're meant to be Dutch celebrities that we, we know nothing about. Yes, and also it's a bit tougher when it's staggered because you want to go back in the episode and, and you're thinking, well, I'm being introduced to 10 people and I don't really know who they are. They're speaking a language I don't really understand verbally, so you got to go back and really hope and try to make connections with what they do and their faces. And it's a lot easier when it's just rapid fire, back to back, all 10 of them in a row, so you can put it into your notes and think, okay, 
I, I know who is who as opposed to having to go through 45 minutes of footage to find the 10 individual bios. Yeah. So even with it being 12 years ago, it's a completely different vibe of an episode as well. Peter Yan is very forthright introducing us to the fact that they're in the land of Shogun and Samurai, Japan. And I also have to point out that it is very weird to see the family photo without somebody going, trust nobody in it. I was waiting for it. I'm thinking, okay, okay, that did not happen until after Japan. (laughs) This is the, well, the trust nobody incident actually happens in the next season. So this is the last full season where you don't hear anyone go, trust nobody. And in terms of the contestants looking like actual celebrities, Tim Ackerman wins the award for the most similar looking guy to Sean William Scott I've ever seen in my life. I know I like to tease the fact that Boober is one of your unironic favourites in Belgian Bowl, but Tim Ackerman is one of my unironic favourites in Vidim. Because he is lovely and is a future Twitter responder to me at this point. When I watched this season, I actually uh, I actually tweeted Tim and he did respond. So he was on he was on the tweeter back in 2010. Uh, this would have been about 2014, 15, something like that. No, it must have been before that, because I started actually watching Vidim live in 2013. So it would have been sort of 2012, 2013. But it just amazes me how much he looks like Sean William Scott. It is very early, very sort of early 2010s fashion in some of these episodes as well. Yeah, we're still coming off the, the 2000s style, right? Like this is early 2010s. So it was July 8th, 2012. I tweeted Tim saying I was watching Vidim Japan and he was my favourite. And he responded on July 9th saying, unfortunately, I'm the worst player ever, but it was an amazing journey in Japan. Was it an amazing journey to Japan or in Japan? In Japan, he specifically said. In Japan. <laughs> so we begin at Skipol Terminal 3 with an introduction to Eric, who's a TV presenter and producer. He says he keeps finding new ways to bring people together and tries to stimulate people, which in return stimulates him. That's the very first note I have, too, after the intros. Eric looks ridiculous with the with the soft R&B music playing in the background of his TV show, and he likes stimulating people. No further questions, Your Honor. <laughs> so we then get introduced to Kim, who's an actress. She says she's open and honest, but these are traits that could change during the game. And did you also notice the Vidim alumna cameo in Kim's video? No, I did not. Also, in another show with Kim that we see a clip from, uh, is Peggy. Oh. Of the Renaissance Parish. I only caught it on my second rewatch of this episode and thought, is that Peggy? And then looked on IMDb and it is. Well, Netherlands isn't a very big country. <laughs> and then it's everyone's favourite Loretta, who's a TV news presenter, and she says she likes having a harmony in a group. And my personal favourite is Fritz saying he is loyal and has integrity. Yeah, we have skipped over Aryan there, who we're definitely going to be talking a lot about, because Aryan is maybe the most famous person from this cast now. He's basically Dutch John Oliver. Oh, really? Yeah, he's a big thing in uh, in the Netherlands. I do see him popping up a lot on my Instagram and Twitter, I think. I think he might have been on... Um, on the Late Show with Colbert last year, actually. He's definitely done some American talk shows not not too long ago. So he's just really into politics now? I think he was always into politics, but I think he's uh, been sort of given the platform for it now. He was on Late Night with Seth Meyers in 2018. That's what I was thinking of. So, you know, he he's a 
he's a big deal in uh, in the Netherlands now. But yeah, at this point, he was just kind of a I don't know fringe comedian's the uh, the right term, but he's he was a fringe comedian then, based off the popularity that he had in uh, the Netherlands after Vidum, he it kind of snowballed and he became Dutch John Oliver and then, you know, started doing American chat shows as well. Interesting. Uh, so yeah, Fritz is next. He's a presenter with the Avro. He's loyal, has integrity, and he pushes through any situation. Then we get future Twitter responder to me, Tim, who's a singer. He's not stressed, but when he's pushed, he expects there will be some stress. Barbara is a presenter and journalist. She's very busy and then she just collapses. And she says if she doesn't get sleep, she becomes really quiet. Her and Philippe can discuss that. Yeah. And John Mark. Don't forget the John Mark. Then we get Hint, who's a singer and the only one to give her age, which is 24. And she says she likes getting to know people, values her privacy. I don't know why she gave her her age. Yeah. I'm, I'm surprised she wants to be on a reality show. The most popular reality show in the Netherlands, if she values her privacy. Now she finds herself being talked about on our podcast 12 years later. Then we get Manuel, who says, we could know him from the TV show Young. We do not. He says what he thinks, but he's also a thinker. <laughs> the final person is Sana, who's an actress and writer. On one hand, she's very social and involved with people's lives, but on the other hand, she's uncomfortable around strangers. She says she comes across as being arrogant or antisocial, but she's just shy. What's hilarious is when they show her acting clip. Do you notice the clip that they pick for her? Oh, she's really young in that clip. She talks, uh, I believe the clip is her saying that she's late for her period. That's it the is. clip they choose out of everything. Yeah, I think Sana was a, a child star, if I'm not mistaken. She started acting when she was really young. I wonder if she's like, oh, I completely chose the period clip. Classic period clip. <laughs> it's like Pochak Horseman. Oh, not the sneezing photo. Why do they always use the sneezing photo? Yeah, so by the time that she was on Vista Mall, she'd been acting in films and TV for 10 years by that point. Oh, she's like Lindsay Lohan. Yeah. And she would have been she would have been 25 when she filmed this. So make of that what you will. So they then all arrive at Schiphol, having no idea where they're going, but former Mole George, the most famous Mole so far, hands Sana a note as she enters, telling them that they're going to be sleeping in a hotel in Nagasaki tonight. That is not entirely accurate, because it takes two days to get there. They're going to be sleeping on a plane tonight. I'm going to guess, in 2010, George may have been the most famous mole. I'm guessing that's no longer the case in 2022. No, I don't know who would be the most famous mole now. Although, fun fact, I have just found out that um, Sana was on, on a season of Expedition Robinson, alongside such luminaries as Jan Versteeg and mm. Avron jackson Hoy. <laughs> The country is too small. Yeah, George is by far the most famous mole at this point. I don't know why, but he, he was the most beloved mole at this point, I think. And that would still be in the civilian era, right? Yeah. Yeah, the first four seasons were civilian. And he was number three. Something very interesting, and I did kind of trail ahead to this uh, on chat with you earlier. Something very interesting about George's season is when they show who George is in case we'd forgotten. I thought... Why are they showing the reveal with him dressed like he's skydiving? So I, w- I went back and watched um, watched the reveal scene of, of George's season without any subs. And it appears that their final kind of challenge after they did the final test was to skydive over Porto 
where the winner would land on a green mat, the loser would land on a red mat, and the mole would land on the mole logo. However, it was a little bit stormy when they did it. They all did the skydive, the final three, and the pilot slightly got his directions wrong, shall we say, and they landed seven and a half kilometers away. (laughs) Oh man, that's a long walk. As Angela described it, the pilots had a navigation issue. And the actual reveal is super anticlimactic because she basically says, I mean, you've got a great pot. It's 57,000 euros. Congratulations, you're the winner of it. Like, in front of all three of them. She just kind of says congratulations in front of them and then shakes the winner's hand. And then George reveals uh, reveals that he's the mole straight after that, basically. It's so weirdly handled. Backup plan. Plan B. Plan B. But yeah, for some reason, they seem to have forced them to skydive after they've already done the final test as the method of reveal. Well, it worked out really well for Maze and Race 24 when they revealed their winner that way. The most beloved winners of all time. <laughs> Tim says that he thought it was very suspicious that Santa was chosen by George. And they all interrogate each other on the plane ride, Tim especially. He'd printed the questionnaire questions off already and asked everyone on the plane to fill in their details. Manuel, because he sat next to Tim, just says he'll copy Tim's notes later. He was that guy in university. Yeah. Arjen says he's looking forward to seeing things that no one else does. He's not looking forward to the game being always on. They are picked up by a guy with a sign saying Nietzsche's what had liked. And Tim yet again, becomes the main character of the episode by just trying out speaking Japanese and saying the guy doesn't understand where is the pharmacy. <laughs> PTM then meets him in Nagasaki on what is actually day one at, where else, a temple. He takes their wallets, phones, passports and money and gives them their mole books. He also warns them that someone will be going home at the end of the episode, making that journey in reverse already and says that they need to find a friend who they can trust for the day after tomorrow, someone that will resist the urge to betray them and that the mole will reveal themselves in episode 3. And I have to say, knowing what we know about this season, those two hints are delightful. Because episode 3 is a contender for one of my favourite mole episodes ever. I don't remember what happened in episode 3 now. (laughs) It's the one with the dinner party. Oh, yes. We'll get to that one. Yeah, if you think my love of the Vietnam dinner party is strong... It mainly stems from the the tea challenge in episode 3 of this season because it is a barnstormer. He also says, in a slight PTM Hagen's dick move, if they think it will be easy to make the final, think about the fact that only two of them will be there, and the mole, of course. And then Peter Yan makes fun of Sana for not grabbing her mole book. Are you just going to take notes mentally in your head? (laughs) I also love how we... We've gone for years saying, oh yeah, Gilda Costa dick move here. And actually, we now get P.T. Hagen's dick moves for this season. Yeah, at least it wasn't uh, as a result of anything Eric did, because he loves stimulating people. He does. And we do not want to see those dick moves. <laughs> it moved. He then asked for four people to go in one group, Sana, Kim, Aryan, and Hind. And of the remaining six, he says he'll meet two of them on the roof. They picked him and Eric, leaving Barbara, Manuel, Loretta, and Fritz on the ground for now. Have you ever seen the Tim and Eric Awesome Show? I have not. <laughs> well, we get our own Dutch version for this episode. 
Except it's not so awesome because it goes rather poorly, this challenge. So those four will then go on a pillar of the Megami Ohashi Bridge and have to keep an eye out on the bay. They get cryptic clues as to who should be on what pillar. For example, the candidate who's a trained accountant and likes to watch E.T. should be on the pillar where the sun rises, which is Barbara and East. Have you ever played the Shin Megami Tanzai games? I have not. I am aware of them from my constant bitching about all the JRPG representation in Nintendo Directs. Yeah, because I've beaten two of the Shin Megami Tanzai games. So it's interesting to see Megami Ohashi Bridge as a location. Because I think Megami, doesn't that translate to monster in Japanese? I I think we have to go to the old Google on that one. <laughs> Megami is the feminine form of Kami. Megami may also refer to Megami Tensai, a Japanese role-playing video game series. Oh my goodness, a manga <laughs> anime series. Apparently means god or deity. That makes sense. So it's the god bridge, basically. God bridge. Sounds so ominous. <laughs> The first four that were picked are on a boat and have to spot the others on pillars to connect them to coloured flags using a telescope. Tim and Eric then get the best job, they get a helicopter flight over Nagasaki and have to spot the colours of the flags raised by the boat team, which they need to remember. Those colours will be representing the person and the direction of the pillar that they're stood on. And of course, this being the early 2010s, Manuel still has his stupid scarf on, even when he's on top of the pillar. Gotta be fashionable. Yeah. They identify that Barbara's on the east pillar which we knew anyway. Fritz shouts down to them, but they hear it as Tim, and they put Tim on the south pillar, even though, you know, Tim's in the helicopter. They, as do most people, forget that Fritz exists, only that Manuel, Eric, and Loretta are the other three potentials. They decide that Eric was on the west pillar, he is blue, as is west, but they only have one blue flag. And this is a hint for you to not do this. Obvious mole action, that. This is a rather complicated opening challenge. Oh god, yeah. When I was because obviously I rewatched this ages ago and then uh, had to rewatch it earlier again to to refresh it before we recorded. I looked through my notes and I'm like, that is a lot of notes to explain the challenge. It requires so much to go right for the team to win a lot of money. This or or any money by that matter. I think they just really got the one thousand euros pretty much by luck. <laughs> they are bound to get one right. And then Ian says that he's suspicious that they think Fritz, with his fear of heights, was inside the helicopter. And then when they land, Eric and Tim get a list and a compass and five minutes to open the four chests without anyone else's help. They can only try one key in each box, inside of which is a thousand euros. And if they open all four, they will double their money to eight thousand euros. I get the feeling a couple of people in this challenge did not really understand this challenge. No, it's very convoluted. Yeah. I was thinking, I remember even when we originally watched it, because I think it's no secret, I really suck when it comes to visuals and pictures and visual puzzles and stuff. And I was just thinking, man, I have a really tough time grasping what we're supposed to do here. And I remember it took me the second time I watched them thinking, okay, I understand a bit more. And then this time watching it, I, I thought I had it right as to how the challenge goes. And then by the end of it, I realized, oh, wait, no. But we're about halfway through watching it this time. I finally understand what the, how to actually do this challenge. <laughs> yeah, basically for them to win money, they would have had to trust that the boat team identified the people correctly, then trust that the boat team represented the people correctly, then trust that Tim and Eric had actually spotted the people correctly, and then trust that Tim and Eric can actually remember the people correctly. 
Yeah, the mold doesn't really have to do too much here to ensure money stays out of the pot. Because the, the binoculars that they're provided from the boat aren't very good. No, it's a um, it's a telescope. It's not even binoculars, it's a telescope, I think. Yeah, it's like an old pirate ship. Yeah, it's a it's a legitimately cool challenge, but also it's incredibly difficult for them to win much money on. And especially when, I, I guess, two days of flying, they're bound to be somewhat bonded, but you don't really get a feel of how people are going to participate in the specific challenges, except for maybe Tim, who wrote down a shit ton of notes on the airplane. Yeah. And speaking of which, I bet two days to get to Nagasaki is no exaggeration, because to get from Amsterdam to Tokyo, I can't even think, would there be direct flights at that time, 12 years ago? Amsterdam? KLM definitely have one. Yeah. And then they would have to get into Tokyo, and then hopefully they wouldn't have to transfer airports and then connect to Nagasaki, and then probably do all the production briefings as well. And there's your two days. Yeah, I've just done a quick Google. Non-stop flight time from Amsterdam to Tokyo is around 11 and a quarter hours. The fastest one-stop flight time between Amsterdam and Tokyo takes close to 14 hours. However, some airlines can take as long as 38 hours based on stopover destination and waiting duration. And then they have to go from Tokyo to to Nagasaki. Yeah, because when I went to Japan from Canada, I had to do... What was it? I flew, flew from Kelowna to Vancouver, Vancouver to Tokyo, then Tokyo to Osaka, and then board the train to get to Kobe. That was a solid that was a solid 19 or 20 hours. Yeah, depending on what the flight routes are like in 2009 when they filmed this, that could have been a pretty gnarly journey. Yeah, that's why I have a tough time believing back then that because tourism really shot up, what, 2013, 2014, when after everyone had smartphones and were a lot more comfortable backpacking and stuff? Because I don't think they flew KLM either. I think it was uh, Japan Airways. Yeah, Japan. Yeah, I saw the JAL logo for the for the flight. So I don't even know what their their routes would be like in terms of direct routes. I know KLM fly direct, definitely. Mainly because I've looked into that flight before. So, unsurprisingly, it doesn't go very well. They only identify Barbara on the East Box for a thousand euros of eight thousand for this challenge. And at lunch, Santa comes up to Tim and proposes a meeting in three minutes in the parking garage. He's the only one that she trusts and she wants to propose an information exchange, which he accepts. If this were an actual Sean William Scott film, they'd totally be making out and having sex in the parking garage right now. I felt like at the time there was a bit of tension between Santa and Tim. I think there is a little bit of mutual flirting in this scene. I mean, they've been cooked up on the, in the airplane for two days. Yeah. I obviously don't know the situation for either of them at this point, but I think there is a an element of of mutual flirting to get what they wanted here. Well, I wanted some information from you. An information exchange. It's a good thing Eric wasn't there, because then he would have wanted to stimulate both of them before he got his information. So Tim says that Barbara doing well is suspicious as she didn't know where the sun rises in Japan. She suspects Hint, as she was the only one to say that Tim was on the pillar. And apparently Kim heard it, but there's no proof that Kim said that she heard it. She also has a bunch with Kim, but she doesn't really trust her, for whatever reason. Yeah, and there's no excuse to not know where the sun rises or where the sun sets, because Californication by Red Hot Chili Peppers had already been out for about, for about 10 years at this point. The sun may rise in the east, but it settles in a Hollywood basement. Good point. 
So Peter Yan then meets him in the afternoon and tells them he's looking for two people who want veto powers. And immediately, Eric, Manuel, Aryan, Barbara, and Loretta all volunteer. And they settle on one guy and one girl, so Loretta and Manuel. And I'm surprised that the entire cast of season 10 of Big Brother Canada didn't volunteer since they oh, almost, almost always use their veto power. Yeah. Every time except once. There was no gummy bears involved, that's the problem. Did you recognize the music um, scoring this Peter Yan scene? No, I did not. It is a piece called The Unheard Boardroom from the soundtrack of the UK version of The Apprentice. Oh. And it is a very noticeable piece of music if you watch The Apprentice. Because it's basically the uh, the deliberation music that, that Lord Sugar uses before he turns around and says, you're fired. Interesting. So the other eight get 2,000 yen each to buy something that represents themselves in the space of five minutes. And Loretta and Manuel must match the right person to the right item for 250 euros per correct answer. It should be noted that 2,000 yen, I believe, would be roughly equivalent to 15 euros. What do you think you would buy, given the opportunity? Uh, to represent me, probably like a, a Super Famicom car- cartridge. For 15 euros, you'd be lucky. I, I think so. I think you can involve It'd be one of the for Super Famicom one? Yeah, I think I could get it for 2,000 yen. You drive a hard bargain. Yeah, just start like yelling. I think I, I could have sworn that would have been the price in like the really common ones, like Super Mario World or something being sold in the in the stores. So Sana says she loves cats, so she buys a puzzle with a cat on it. Aryan looks for a book, but only finds manga. And apparently if you think of Barbara, you think ball. And she finds a ball in a pet shop. Yeah, instead of like because she says she likes dogs, so why not just get like a dog bone or dog treat? <laughs> Eric says he's looking for either a scooter or a butterfly, as it's the animal that represents him, as he's very flighty. And he apparently had this conversation with like half the contestants. They say, oh yeah, Eric's a butterfly. He's talked about it on the plane ride over. I presume it's one of the questions that they're asked, what animal would represent you? You know, Tim's got the thousand question list or whatever and gone... Eric, what animal represents you? And then as a result of that, everyone knows it's Butterfly. Loretta says to Manuel that she would buy the first thing that she saw, a monkey or a dog or something. <laughs> she didn't think that... I don't think Loretta got the challenge. <laughs> now, Loretta is absolutely, even regardless of the fact that she goes home in this episode already, she's basically just a bit player in this episode. She has no idea what she's doing. She flies over to Japan, she has a few days there, and she flies back. Uh, not a few days. She had a day and a morning. Well, they land at night, don't they? So she had a night first and then a full day and then the next morning she flew. Yeah, it's like, who is it? Lindsay Lohan or Paris Hilton when they count how long they were in prison for? Th- three days worked out to going to jail at 11 p.m. and then getting out at midnight of the third day. So it was like 25 hours counted as three days in prison. The other eight are paired up by Loretta and Manuel and have first pass on the items that have been bought. If they think that the picture already there is wrong, they can remove it and put it in the box. If not, they put the matching picture in the box from their pile. Aryan and Ahinta first. They know that Eric is a butterfly. Sana and Barbara find a comic book and swap Fritz out for Tim as he likes to draw comics. Kim picks a teapot, which Aryan and Hind know that she only drinks tea. Sana and Barbara are confused by a TV guide with a boy band on the cover and pick Eric, but it's actually Tim's. The TV guide threw a lot of people off. 
because they're all on TV. <laughs> yeah, it's such a weird choice for him to to go for, because I mean, obviously, I didn't suspect him at the time. Annoyingly, I've not got much suspicion from the time, so I can't even go through who I suspected each week. You had mine, right? I could probably dig them out for next episode, but I don't think I suspected Tim at the time. But this is a really weird choice for him to go for. Yeah, because they're all on TV. TV guy, like, that doesn't narrow things down. You may as well have had, like, just buy a, a human doll and just put it there. I presume it's because there was a boy band on the cover, but you find some sort of musical instrument. Everyone knows you're the musician of the group, Tim. <laughs> if somebody bought a Dutch flag and put it in there. <laughs> so Tim and Fritz are the third pair. Tim says he always goes for his first instinct. Eric and Kim remove Ian's picture from his and swap it for Barbara as she has her own magazine. Kim claims to Eric that she didn't buy the teapots and they swap her for Hint. Eric tries asking what she bought. She refuses to say. And then she swaps Barbara's picture for hers on the ball just to mess around and make sure they have to use the vetoes. Manuela and Loretta have two vetoes. They consider vetoing Sana's puzzle, but choose not to. They veto Kim on the ball and Hint on the teapot. And P.T. Ann hints that they should change one of the two Hint pictures that are next to each other. Yeah. In another P.T. Ann Hagen's dick moment. They are 100% correct, so in 2,000 euros for the pot for a total of 3,000 of 10,000 for the episode. And Tim is the treasurer. And then P.T. Ann warns them that someone is going home on the morning of day two. I'm curious what Sean William Scott would have done holding on to 3,000 euros in the pot. Well, from what I know of Japan, it probably buys you a coffee in Japan, that doesn't it? 3,000 euros? Yeah, or those uh, square watermelons. Japan is expensive, but it's not that expensive. No, it's not the most expensive place I've been. That's uh, that's probably Sweden. Sweden's very expensive. So Kim claims at dinner that she thought they should mess something up just so they needed to use the veto. And we see Barbara and Aryan make a friendship pact, and Hint says that she's been left out by everyone. On day two, they board the bus, and it is time for the test. 20 questions on the identity and actions of the mole. Whoever knows least goes home, except for the bowl, who can never go home unless they're Philippe. I did appreciate the kimono lady at the hotel who was insistent upon taking, I think it might have been Manuel's picture. No, Tim's it was picture. Tim. It was Tim. Tim, yeah, taking Tim's picture before he, got on the, before he got on the bus. The best thing about it is Tim's kind of awkward thank you. He looks genuinely uncomfortable, and it's, it's kind of delightful. I can't wait for him to, when he goes to the Philippines and he has to take uh, take selfies there. I also have to point out that the music that they used during the test scene is the classic Looking for Clues by David Arnold from the Godzilla soundtrack, which is a piece of music that has been associated for years with them all and they don't use anymore. I guess they reached its peak when they got to use it in the Japan theme season. Yeah, it's a wonderful piece of music, Looking for Clues, and it, it crops up everywhere. Uh, Arjen says that Hint was suspicious on the boat, claiming to hear Barbara yell Tim out and that Fritz was in the helicopter. Hint suspects a man, and it's implied that she suspects Eric. Loretta says the game makes you dizzy, everyone's being mysterious, and you can't trust anyone. Tim suspects Barbara, we think. Fritz says that Kim could be the mole she's unreadable, and the boat was where the first challenge went wrong. She can hide behind Hint with the Tim mistake, and she also messed up at the walk of items. Sana thinks that the mole was in the helicopter. Eric says a few people are suspicious. Barbara, who sees everything going wrong and lets it. And Kim, after she deliberately messed up the second assignments with the men he only suspects Manuel. 
Manuel suspects Sana. Kim says that Kenneth is macked, knowledge is power. She suspects Barbara, so wants as much information on her as possible. Eric's also a bit suspicious. She messed up when she was with him, but only because he took the initiative and he was suspicious in the helicopter. They could have easily looked at the pillars as well as the boat. Barbara suspects Eric. Peter Yan says that it took two days to get there, and they played for only one day, but someone will take the exact same trip back in just a few hours' time. I and Kim and Tim all get green screens before Loretta gets a red screen and is sent home. And it's one of the more bizarre exits, because everyone just laughs when she's executed. There's no devastation, there's no Jessica-esque crying from the Malbelgia. It's just, ha that's hilarious, Loretta's first out. Oh man, that's a real knee slapper. Yeah, it's a really weird vibe, I have to say. Yeah, it's an odd one. It's an odd one for an elimination. And then, the the funniest part of all... I am, I'll be honest, I'm just letting you, I'm letting you talk about this, because I wrote it in my notes, I know you wrote it in your notes, and it's your favourite thing to talk about. The first boot... First of all, that was whoa, that was real Canadian. <laughs> the first boot, as we all know, on the mole. After the person gets eliminated, they get a montage, and then I always reference the reality bites, um, reality TV parody show that Fox had for one season, like fifteen years ago, that Theo Vaughn was on, and a few other comedians, where they had a Big Brother parody in the first episode. It was a different reality show each week. And then they had a twist where, oh, we're going to eliminate somebody right at the start of the game or, or somebody quit. I can't remember exactly. But the person is eliminated about 20 minutes into the first episode. And then they say, oh, yeah, that person went home so quickly. They don't even get a montage. So here we are. First boot. First episode of this season. Ten contestants. Loretta is showing the least out of anybody and gets, I think, the award. For the worst montage I think any contestant has ever received. I transcribed her whole montage. They picked out three very random quotes. I've always wanted veto power. A red cat is Barbara. So that's East and that's West. That's her montage. Even though I don't love the montages as much as you do, I watched this a few weeks ago when I did the original rewatch and laughed my head off at it. And yet again, when I was watching it again earlier, I laughed my head off at it because it was, it's just so random. Just go straight to her talking to Peter Yand. You don't need to give her a montage. It must be just an unwritten law that everyone has to get a montage on the mall. You don't need to give her a montage. Because I was thinking, well, she only got to play two challenges. One of them, she just stood on a pillar, right? She just stood on a pillar, didn't really understand what was going on. She didn't get to move flags or anything. She just had to try and yell out her own name, which I don't think she did. I think she just waited to be seen. She didn't make alliances with anybody, right? No coalitions? Not that we saw. So, yeah, we didn't see any footage of her interacting with the other contestants at dinner or breakfast or anywhere. So then the second challenge, she got to do the veto power thing, but it was just all she was doing was walking along a trail of replacing items. So it's not like... Other montages we see where somebody gets to, at least to do a skydiving stunt, like in the first American season of The Mole, the first challenge was skydiving. So at least whoever goes home first gets to have that on their highlight reel, no matter what. But for Loretta, she didn't get to do anything like that. She stood on a pillar and walked a flat path for a few minutes and didn't really comment or any, on anything, didn't have any intensity towards the game. 
So they just had to pull out three quotes without any context. And that became the, the worst montage in reality TV history. So she tells Peter Yan that she didn't do her homework and focused too much on one person, but she got to cut a Nagasaki and stand on a pillar, and no one could take that away from her. <laughs> Emphasis might have been my own there, just to give her a bit of personality. And one thing I want to point out that I really noticed when they were taking the quizzes, the, the font. The font on the quiz screens was like something out of a GeoCities website in the early 2000s, maybe even late 90s. Yeah, it's very quaint seeing them um, seeing them do the test with two back-to-back laptops as well. I have to point that out. Red, yeah, the red font there, and uh, just the or the color, the color, the way the color it was like Angel Fire, like the way Angel Fire websites too that you'd see twenty years ago. That was nostalgic for me to see. I mean, that is modern day technology in Canada. <laughs> yeah. I believe GeoCities shut down in 2009, if I'm not mistaken. If you go to anyone in uh, in any major Canadian city and just say, will you be in my top eight on MySpace? They will say yes. <laughs> Especially if their name is Tom. So next time, there are trams, nobody speaks English, the Yakuza strike, and a game of trust is played. Awesome. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, it's a fun episode, the next one. I'm more partial to episode three, I have to be honest, but... It is a fun episode, the next one. I'm hoping whoever gets a montage at the end of episode two gets a more flattering one than the one Loretta got. I don't think you can get a less flattering one, to be honest. And I'm going to guess there is a bit more forgiveness for her going straight ticket on one person. I, I, I mean, after 10 years, the strategy should already be established that you don't go all in on one person. But the fact that we now know contestants are doing it at the beginning, nearly... 10 years later or over 10 years later it's easier to give loretta some slack in hindsight yeah have you got anything else you want to say before we talk about what the mold did nope i think i'm good excellent in that case thank you for listening to our vista mold 2010 recap we'll be back next week to continue the hunt for an old mold in japan don't forget you can contact us on twitter facebook youtube or instagram where we are tv warriors or you can email us and contact rtvwarriors.com logan is on twitter at logsupercracky and i'm mj harmstone Thank you as always to Marika for the subtitles. We'll see you next week. Peace out and just chill until the next of flavoury. It's also worth pointing out that this season actually predates Marika. Marika didn't do the original subs for this season. Oh. It was um, it was one of a couple of uh, seasons subtitled by the YouTuber uh, That Dark Spark, who disappeared right before the end of 2014, I think it was. Oh, hopefully that person is doing well. They disappeared between the finale and reunion, I think it was, of 2014. And then Marika picked up the slack from 2015 onwards. And has been with us ever since. Interesting. So what did the mole do? Well, the mole, which is Kim... (laughs) It is, we can actually say it's Kim now. (laughs) Who I believe, when I was sending you my predictions, Michael, or, or my suspect list each week, I had her, I think, at the top from the very first episode, or close to it. I'm going to have to try and find your, your suspect list. Because this is one of, the few, one of the very few Dutch seasons where I was on to the mole from the first episode, I think. I think well, I think Kim is known as my crowning achievement in Vidim, until everyone. 
I can find some references to it in sort of January 2019, I think. I'll keep digging. So during the first challenge, she just didn't relay the correct information, if I recall correctly. I think she messed with the focus on the telescope as well. Yeah, because everyone always had to refocus it right after she would handle it. Yeah, Aryan specifically said that it focused for like half a second and then went back to blurry again. And then during the path challenge, of course, she was deliberately trying to make mistakes and making that clear to Eric. <laughs> yeah, I think I think as we go along, you'll you'll see that Kim is one of the less subtle moles. And we make a point of not ranking moles on the podcast. She's probably a lower tier mole on a higher tier season, I think. I like Kim as a person, but she's not as subtle as, as she could be. She does a very blatant mole action, and they draw a lot of attention to it in this episode, which is the not telling the truth about what she bought and removing her picture from what she bought to force them to use the vetoes. Yeah, that's a bit of an unusual sabotage for Mole to make in round one. But I do like her style of sabotages after this. I think she just had a bit of a rough start. It's interesting because we're right in the middle of the seat. We're one week after Philippe quit uh, the Belgian Mole. So it's interesting to see a Mole not have the first, not have a challenge go the way they were hoping to and just see how they overcome that and become a much more successful mole throughout the rest of the season. Yeah, when I rewatched this premiere, I was actually quite surprised how unsubtle she was at points. I think she kind of quietens down a little bit on that, but I was pretty surprised that she was so unsubtle, especially on that second challenge. Because, I mean, Fritz is onto her from, from this episode. Fritz specifically says that Kim could be the mole. Yeah, and what was interesting that but I, because it was my first time viewing, but now in hindsight, seeing Sana write... Hindsight. In hindsight, yes. Uh, Sana had a confessional where she said, hmm, Kim is really suspicious to me right now. And she says that right after the first challenge, I think. Yeah, she says that to um, to Tim. Yeah, but she doesn't trust her. And it's, it's very interesting to see our eventual final two contestants already be onto the right track in week one. And it actually be shown on the episode, because they never would show that now. Yeah. And then from week two onwards, I think, Kim, I'm assuming production told Kim, to, to saying uh, uh, the sabotage there and the path challenge really drew a lot of attention to you. You may want to change your strategy from here on out. And then I don't think anyone else really puts her down as the mole until the end of the other than those two, right? Because Eric was the, uh, made it to final four. I don't think Aryan does. So if anyone else did, it would be Eric. But I can't I can't remember who suspects who by the end of this season, being perfectly honest. Because it's so long since I've seen it. <laughs> Anyways, those are her sabotages. Yep. Anything else you want to say? Nope. In that case, see you next week. <laughs>